The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 12, beginning at verse 19. We'll be reading through verse 25 this morning, the word of the Lord. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, You shall be swept away, both you and your king. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. We'll be reading through verse 8 this morning. If you were with us last week, you'll recall that the Lord there began speaking about not being like the hypocrites. First, he told us not to be like the hypocrites in terms of our Christian charity. Uh, That we talked about last week. This morning, he's going to introduce not being like the hypocrites in terms of how we pray. But pay attention, he's going to add something else. Not just not like the hypocrites, but not like the Gentiles, which in this context means the pagan Gentiles. Then in a couple weeks, Lord willing, we will come to the portion of God's word where he tells us not to be like the hypocrites in fasting. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 5, the word of our God. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. What you think about God will determine how you pray. Let me say that again. What you think about God will determine how you pray. We all know this on a very practical basis with other people. Um, If your school teacher, when you want to bring questions to her, is excited to talk to you about your questions, to hear what you're curious about, and to help you along the way, 
then you're going to be relaxed, perhaps even excited in bringing your questions to her. Uh, She's going to help you learn. She might be helping you with a particular problem you have. On the other hand, if your teacher is someone who makes it seem like it's a great burden to listen to your questions, well, you might not even go talk to that teacher at all. And if you do, you're going to go reluctantly, nervous, not wanting to take up too much of her time. See, the way that we see other people and the way that we see them in their relationship with us affects whether or not we talk to them at all, and it also drives how we approach them. The very same thing is true with the living God. What you think about God will determine whether you pray to him at all and also how you actually approach him in prayer. This also means that the way in which we pray, the fact that we don't pray very much or not at all, also serves as a mirror of what we truly think about the living God. And so reforming our prayer life, as Jesus Jesus is calling us to do, of necessity is going to cause us to reform the way we think about the living God as our King and our Father in heaven, or at the very least, it's going to cause us to need to think about those things more frequently so that they're at the front of our minds. This morning we will look at how the Lord is calling us to reform the way that we think and pray under three main headings. They're very simple. First, we pray to our king. Second, prayer is relational. And third, we pray to our father. Uh, Those are very simple, but they're really important for you to get, so I'm going to say them again. First, we pray to our king. Secondly, prayer is relational. And third, we pray to our Father, who is in heaven. We begin with the truth that we pray to our King. Look at verse 5 with me. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So last week, Jesus warned us against doing our Christian charity as hypocrites in order to be seen and praised by men. And now he's telling us the very same thing about our prayers. Right? Don't pray so that other people will see you praying and think of you as being really pious. If you do that, you have the wrong audience. In fact, Jesus even includes the very same conclusion that he did last week with our Christian charity. The Lord's verdict on those who pray for the sake of other people hearing them, Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. As I said last week, there is sort of a short, fleeting kind of reward you can get from being publicly pious. It's true that some people might actually be fooled, but that just blows away with the wind. It does not receive the praise of God. Rather, it receives his judgment. Um, The image that Jesus uses here is pretty vivid, at least for me. Uh, This idea of people, you know, they enjoy standing up in the synagogues to pray or or going out into the street corners or or into the open squares, as it were. I I imagine people and, oh, I imagine men, first of all, doing this. 
Um, like women can do this too, but in the ancient world, Jesus is really thinking about men. Imagine them going out in nice, beautiful robes and making a show of their eloquence and their piety. And clearly that's wrong. But we should be careful not to think that that's the only way to do this. Right? Because I don't do that. I don't wear long flowing robes and go and pray in the street. But, but that doesn't mean that I don't need to check my own heart and you don't need to check your own heart for the more subtle ways in which we might want to appear pious rather than to actually be pious in the way that we pray. What we have to remember is that the people who are doing that, the people who do that today, they're concerned about who is praying rather than being concerned about the one to whom we pray. I have actually experienced this numerous times. I've been in the church my entire life. And um, regretfully, well, first of all, let me say thankfully, not with you, not with this congregation. But regretfully, I have many memories of people coming up to me and grumbling that they never get an opportunity to be the one that reads the scriptures or to publicly pray in public worship. You understand what they're saying is, I deserve a turn in what they imagine, I guess, is the spotlight. But but they're thinking that what matters in public worship is, I get seen praying, I get my turn, rather than the Lord to whom we are actually offering our prayers. But beloved, that's wrong. It's actually not simply mistaken, it's something that God himself looks down upon and judges. But as I say, we ought not to take those obviously wrong things and say, well, I'm not doing that, I'm safe. We ought to consider the more subtle ways in which I'm trying to be pious for the sake of other people rather than pious before God seeking his pleasure. So let me offer two very practical applications from this verse. Um, First, we should not misapply this verse by imagining that because these people are doing their sin in public, that public prayer is somehow wrong. Right? That you should only pray in your inner room. Uh, that's obviously not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying don't pray in public. Uh, for one thing, Jesus, of course, prayed in public. But it's not just Jesus, it's the entire church. When you turn to the very earliest days of the apostolic church, you look in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and there we're told this. The earliest disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. See, all four of those activities are public. Prayer belongs as part of corporate worship. It belongs in your family worship, right, where you're going to be doing it in public in a sense. You're going to be doing it together. Uh, It's something that you go out to have a meal at a restaurant. Totally good that you're out there in public and you give thanks. Don't make a show of it, right? If if, If you're giving an eight minute prayer loud enough for everyone else to hear in the restaurant, that, that's, that's actually precisely what Jesus is saying not to do. But simply giving thanks for your food in public, that's a perfectly good thing, right? There are many times where this is appropriate. Um, I want to give you a, an application that probably most of you would not think of of yourself, but another time where it really is a good idea to sometimes, notice I didn't say always, but sometimes to pray in public. Um, in American culture, and that, I'm talking about the church culture, If someone here comes to you after the service today and says, you know what, I've been really weighed down with this burden. I'm struggling with my job. 
uh, I have depression, whatever the issue happens to be that they bring to you, my aunt is terribly sick, our, our knee-jerk reaction is to say, I will pray for you. Right? I mean, that's what we mostly do. That's a perfectly fine thing, as long, as, of course, as you actually go off and pray. But I want to encourage, I know not all of you, because some of you this would be very difficult for, but many of you to consider praying right then and there. Right? You do not have to say, I will pray for you and go off. I'm, I'm going to give an example that may embarrass someone just a little bit, but I do that. Um, just last week during fellowship lunch, David Fiore just found out that I had had heart problems. I had been in the ER for whatever, eight, nine, ten hours, and uh, he had just found that out. And so I'm sitting there eating lunch, and he came over and put his hand on my shoulder, and he prayed for me. That's a good thing to do. Now, unless you happen to be sitting around us, um, you didn't know he did that. Because David did not stand up and say, quiet down, can I have everyone's attention? I, yes, I, am about to pray for our pastor. Right? That would be wrong. But not surprisingly, that is not what David did. Because he wasn't talking to you. He was talking to our Father who is in heaven. Now, as I said, I know some of you would be uncomfortable doing that. You're, you're actually so nervous about praying in front of other people that, that taking that step would be hard. That's fine. Uh, I would encourage you, though, pray right then and there. Just pray quietly. And do say you'll pray for them and then go pray for them. That's a good thing to do. But for many others here, you don't do that simply because it's not your habit. And if we're going to become a people of prayer who make prayer an ordinary, regular part of our day-to-day -day life, we have to learn to pray in the moment, whether quietly or out loud. And I want to encourage you. Most of you will have an opportunity to do this in just the next week. Go ahead and try it. Put your hand on someone's shoulder. Just the two of you three of you, quietly pray, give thanks to God, make it simple. I think you'll be glad that you did and will actually be good for your own walk with the Lord. Of course, the Lord will use your prayers for his own glory and to bless his people. I should say that this, this, these verses are an introduction, as it were, to the Lord's prayer. So if we think we're not supposed to pray in public, we're going to have a problem. The Lord's Prayer is a, is a type of form the Lord gives us. He actually does expect us to pray it. That would have been the tradition of rabbis in the first century. He does expect us to literally pray the Lord's Prayer. But also to use it as our form that we understand how we are to pray. Now, you can do that in, in private. It's a good thing to do in private. It's good to take the Lord's Prayer and pray through different parts of it and expand on it as it applies personally to your life. But if you notice that the Lord's Prayer uses plural pronouns... Our Father, right? That's how it begins. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Quite obviously, Jesus expected, at least on some occasions, that the people of God would pray this prayer together, publicly. And, you know, I mentioned Acts 2.42. I appreciate that the English Standard Version translates the article before prayers. It doesn't say they were devoted to prayer. It says they were devoted to the prayers. Because almost certainly, well, first of all, that's what the Greek says, but almost certainly what is going on is there were set prayers that everyone knew what the words were so they could pray together. It, it was public. 
So let us not allow the truth that people abuse public prayer to keep us from doing a very thing that God does want us to do in some circumstances, which is for us to pray in public. See, Jesus isn't so much after the location of where we pray. He is after the location and the orientation of our hearts. Are we seeking after the praise of men, or are we seeking the pleasure and praise of God? Second, consider what making a show out of prayer says about what such a person thinks about God. I've titled this section, We Pray to Our King. Just think about an earthly king or an earthly president. Imagine you're in the Oval Office. There you are with the President of the United States, and there's someone there pretending to talk to the President out of a desire to impress other people in the room. I mean, that's pretty nutty. But if that's bad, imagine someone doing that in the first century with Caesar. See, unlike the President, I mean, the President can do a lot of things. You know, Caesar snaps his fingers. There's a census. Mary and Joseph have to travel to Bethlehem uh, in order to get registered. He snaps his fingers, there's war, right? And even perhaps more personally, he snaps your fingers and he takes away your life. You would not go before Augustus Caesar and prattle on like you're talking to him in order to impress one of his servants. You would not do that. But beloved, if that's foolish and it is, how much more foolish is it to do that before the living God? Right? As Jesus tells us, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. See, to pray like the hypocrites makes clear that those who do so have no fear of God before their eyes. They only care about what other people, whose breath is but in their nostrils, happen to be thinking about them for the next few moments. We kind of understand how pagans could do that. I mean, you know, um, they didn't understand who the true God is. But how could Jews in the first century, or Christians in the 21st century, pray as though they have no fear of God before their eyes? Two thoughts. First, we live and pray with no fear of God before our eyes when we forget that the Lord is holy. Uh, Let's remind ourselves that Jesus is not our boyfriend. He is not a doting and loving but senile uncle or grandparent. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords before whom each of us must give account. Think back to when the Lord first appears to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet himself is telling us this story. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and lifted up, seated upon his throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, 
Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Not surprisingly, Isaiah did not respond by pretending to talk to the Lord in order to impress other people. What did Isaiah say? He cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Beloved, this is the God before whom we pray. This is the God to whom we pray. He is holy beyond our wildest comprehension. When we pray, we pray to our God and to our King. And our God is a consuming fire. Let's not trifle with him. Second, we can be tempted to pray like the hypocrites when we forget that the Lord is present with us and that he is paying attention to everything that we say, everything that we do, and everything that we think. Now, the West has been deeply, deeply influenced by the ancient Greek philosophy known as Epicureanism. You probably know that a little bit better from a, a, a variation of it in the modern world called deism. Basically, when you think of deism, it's, sure, the universe got to start. God's a creator, you know. Didn't just come from nothing. But, you know, God doesn't care about all the details of life. He wound up the clock. He created the clock. He wound it up. He's letting it run. Doesn't really care that much what's going on. Or in the words of Bette Midler, if God is watching us at all, he is watching us from a distance. Now, I trust you all know that's not right. But it's so much a part of our culture that it can kind of seep into the way that you actually think and the way that you actually act. This imaginary God is almost the exact opposite of the true and living God. The Lord your God knows and cares about even the thoughts and the intentions of your hearts. Now, if we will remind ourselves that our king is always present, always caring, always holy, and always exhaustively sovereign, then we will see praying like the hypocrites to be the utter foolishness that it is. So let's do that. Let's remember that we pray to our king, and let's remember that our prayer is intended to be relational. It's about you talking to your God who is both your king and your father. Look at verse 6 with me. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Um, there's an emphatic use of that personal pronoun you in the Greek. It's kind of hard to bring out exactly how, how strong it is. See, Jesus has just warned us to not pray like the hypocrites. And now he turns to us and he says, you, as for you, you don't pray like that. You pray like this. Don't be like them. Be like this instead. Now, 
Jesus calls us to go into this inner room, and uh, the word here normally means storeroom. In, in ancient Palestine, a typical home, there'd be a room in the middle of the house, and it was actually the only room in the house that could be locked up. That, that was the storeroom. That's where Jesus is saying to go. And the contrast is what makes this so important. He says, instead of being out in the middle of the street, right, get to that place where nobody can see you. He actually says, and shut the door behind you. Maybe shut and lock the door behind you might even be the idea. So it's just you and the Lord. Right? Because prayer is re- relational. And while we've already seen that Jesus is not telling us that we should never pray in public. In fact, there are many times we ought to pray in public. The access of prayer, whether we're in private or in public, is always relational. It's between the person praying and the God to whom we are praying. And that means that we should make an effort, particularly in our private prayers, to make sure that they're private. To make sure that they're in a quiet place where it's just you and God, and you are sharing your relationship with them. You know, you do this. um, Some of you had the joy of falling in love and dating and getting engaged and getting married. You know that in that process, there are times when you just want to be alone with your beloved. It's about the two of you, face-to-face in your relationship. God is saying that's true of the way we ought to come to him as his children as well. The axis of prayer ought to always run between the person praying and the Lord to whom we pray, even when that prayer is public prayer. Um, Here's an encouragement for you. I'm bringing this up to the 21st century, but I think this will be helpful. Don't only seek a place that is private, but seek a place that is quiet. And I mean not just quiet from outside noise, I mean a place that's quiet from electronic interruptions. If you're praying in front of your computer, look, you can pray everywhere. I often pray while I'm taking walks. I'm on the treadmill. I'm in the car driving. Right? You can pray anywhere. But sometimes in your life, you need to get to a place where it's quiet. And if you're praying in front of your computer screen, the very fact that the computer screen's there is going to invite you to think about emails and social media and text. And, and if it's turned on, it's going to go ding. Uh, trust me, Satan knows how to do that. It's going to go ding right in the middle of your prayers. The same thing's true of your cell phones. So let me give you an illustration of your cell phones. Because we're talking about focusing on the relationship with the Lord. You go out to eat with someone. They're a friend of yours. You know. And um, they lay their cell phone face up on the table. And while you're talking, they keep glancing down at it. They're looking at it. How do you feel? I mean, you know what they're doing. Uh, They're saying there's something else or someone else who's more important to me than you who are right in front of me. Even if they don't mean to. It might just be a bad habit that some of them, perhaps some of us, have picked up. Okay, so they go to fix it. They turn the phone over. How much has that fixed it? Not very much. Put the phones away and talk to the person in front of you. And that's true with your relationship with God. It really is okay for you to leave your cell phone in the other room or at least put it in your pocket and make sure it's off so that you can focus on the most important person in the entire universe, the God to whom you are bringing your prayers. Now, for some of you, I'll be honest, this is going to be hard. You're just touching a habit. You're so attached to your phone right now. Um, Or there are other things that are distracting you. So let me ask, 
Why is it that we sometimes have difficulty giving the Lord our undivided attention? Right? Well, why, why is that hard? I, I, trust me, when, when my wonderful wife and I were dating and getting ready to get engaged, I had no difficulty at all of focusing on her. None. So why is it so difficult for us to give the Lord our undivided attention? I want you to look again at verse 6 with me, because I think there's an important clue in here. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And the intriguing phrase here is, pray to your Father who is in secret. Uh, R.T. France suggests, oh, I should back up a bit here. You know, it's so easy to read that passage and flip it around and go, well, yeah, I'm in secret. I'm in secret meeting with my father. You understand what Jesus said? He said, your father is in secret. Now, in part, that means he's meeting with you in secret, sure. But R.T. France, a very fine New Testament scholar, suggests it's also an indication that God is invisible. Right? Part, of, part of the secrecy is, is the hypocrites, they're trying to be seen by men, but God can't be seen by you. God is invisible. Let me give you an analogy. Uh, maybe this works differently for some of you, so it might not work, but I'm going to take a shot at it. If you're sitting at a table, looking across from each other and talking to someone, isn't it easier to maintain your focus on that person than if you're talking to them on a cell phone while they're somewhere else and you're driving your car and you're seeing things and there's new stimuli coming up in your life and there's things that are demanding your attention and you're going, ooh, that restaurant, I want to eat there someday or whatever. Right? Isn't that really just realistic for at least most of us? Well, we have a problem here because God is invisible and all those visible things are going to grab our attention. So it is actually really helpful for us sometimes to get to a comfortable, familiar place where there isn't new stimuli coming into you. Or to pray with your eyes closed. Right? Please don't do that while you're driving. But, but to, to make sure you're paying attention to your surroundings and how they're influencing you, so that you can have that deeper personal relationship in the way that you talk with your Father, who is in heaven. And, and nevertheless, I think Jesus wants us to grasp something else in here um, that I think is absolutely clear. Jesus wants us to see that when we go into our storeroom and pray to our Father, who is in secret, though we cannot see the Lord, he most certainly is seeing us. His loving eye is always upon you. Jesus says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, what does Jesus mean by reward? He doesn't say. I think actually part of the intent here is it's not important that you get, these are the six things you'll get or the 12 benefits you'll get if you pray like this. Actually, it has the broader category. It's about relationship. As you draw near to God seeking to be a blessing to him, seeking to bless him with the words on your lips and to praise him, the Lord delights to draw near to you and to bless you too. That's how the relationship works. So let's remember that we pray to our king and that our prayers are intrinsically relational. In fact, this leads us naturally to the third made heading for this morning. We pray to our father. Please look at verses 7 and 8 with me. 7 and 8. 
When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now there's an important shift that takes place in verse 7. He's no longer talking about the hypocrites. I'm not saying that pagans can't be hypocrites. That's not the point. But previously, in talking about the hypocrites, these are people that have a different audience. They're only pretending to pray to God, but actually their intent is to impress other people. Jesus is warning us here that we are not to pray like the Gentiles. And that doesn't mean you Gentiles who are Christians. That means like the pagans. See, the hypocrites were only play-acting in terms of prayers. The intended audience for their prayers was not the living God. The intended audience of their prayers was other people who would admire and applaud them for their outstanding piety. But that is not what the Gentiles that Jesus is talking about are doing. They apparently very much want the attention of a God or some gods. They are going to take steps to get the attention of that God but they have an entirely wrong idea of what God is like. Right? That the pagans are desperate to get the attention of what they foolishly imagine to be their gods. Do you see how their wrong view about what God is like leads them to the wrong type of prayer? Um, R.T. France, once again, um, he puts it well. He says, instead of trusting a father to fulfill their needs... They think they must badger a reluctant deity into taking notice of them. Um, The the approach that Jesus describes here is characterized by two very colorful terms. The ESV translates them as they pray with empty phrases and they pray with many words. I'd like to add even a slight, have a slightly more pejorative translation of that idea of empty phrases. They're babbling. Well, why wouldn't they? They don't view prayer as relational. Right? Remember, pagans did not have a relationship with their gods. The basic thing was quid pro quo. I offer sacrifices to the god. They often thought they fed the gods. And the gods in return, well, they give me good crops. I do my part, they do theirs. There's no relationship. There's no love there between them. It's manipulative. Uh, and so the idea is I'm over here praying, trying to get the god's attention. And many words might do that. Or if I get the forms right, or if I offer a big enough sacrifice, they are not approaching their Father who is in heaven. And I just ask you, do you ever approach God that way? Like you got to do something to get his attention? Uh, I'm going to talk about this in a few weeks when we come to fasting, but I had a professor in seminary who was a very fine professor and a very devout man from everything I could tell. But he used to talk about fasting that way. Like, fasting was a way kind of getting God's attention. He would say, you know, when when, when you pray, you put one hand on the altar. When you fast and pray, you put both hands on the altar. You're showing God how serious you are. But, beloved, that's how the pagans approach God. That's not what fasting's about. That's not what prayer is about. Your Father in heaven looks at you as one of his little children. He's delighted to listen to what you have to say and to give you everything that you need. Since there wasn't a relationship in terms of the pagan relationship with their gods, the point of prayer wasn't to communicate intelligently with the god. 
It was simply to get the gods' attention. These pagans imagined that their prayer would be answered thanks to the torrent of their words. More was better. Eloquent was better. I do want to say, nevertheless, Jesus is not condemning pagan prayers simply for their length. Um, It is true that many words can be a problem. We should also remember that Jesus does stay up all night in prayer. Multiple occasions. We, We should understand that Jesus calls us as his people to persist in prayer. Just in the next chapter, in chapter 7 of uh, Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will tell us, keep on asking and you will receive. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. See, Jesus is not saying, please keep your prayers like your memos to one page. The Almighty does not have a lot of time for you. And you know what? In a normal, healthy relationship among humans, a lot of your conversations are very short, and some of them are long. That's the way it should be with your relationship with God. Nothing wrong with a prayer if it takes 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds. But part of your relationship should be there will be times when you're pouring over the Bible and you're just sitting with God for, for a lengthy period of time. That, that's not what Jesus is telling us about. What Jesus is warning us against is that we're not to imagine that we're going to impress, let alone manipulate the living God, by just repeating empty words over and over again. Uh, The best example I can think of this, because you get both sides of the story, is with Elijah on Mount Carmel. You know, when Elijah goes to Mount Carmel, it's a wicked time in Israel. Most of the Israelites have run after the pagan gods. There's uh, 450 prophets of Baal, there's 400 prophets of Asherah, And Elijah, with a bit of exaggeration, says, you know, prophets of Yahweh, I and I alone am left. So Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a contest. He asks for two bulls, and he proposes a contest between Baal and Yahweh. Um, They're going to prepare the bulls, but they're not going to light a fire. And he says, we'll both pray. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. The people like that. They're going to get a show. Um, you remember how it goes, though? He lets the prophets of Baal go first. There's 450 of them, after all. They dance. They shout. It doesn't work. Nothing happens. In fact, we're told this. So the prophets of Baal took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. Right, that would have been three o'clock. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now you see these prophets of Baal, they're not doing this all for show. They actually think they're going to get Baal's attention by cutting themselves. 
but by repeating phrases over and over again and making a great show of it. But no one answers, because Baal is not a real god. But what about Elijah? We should back up and say with this passage, we think about no one answering them. Jesus is saying, when you approach Yahweh, the true and living God, don't pray like those pagans who are even cutting themselves to try to get their God's attention. Don't pray like that, because your Father in heaven isn't anything like Baal. Instead, learn to pray like Elijah. Now, do you remember how Elijah prayed? We got six hours of prayer here, roughly speaking, from the prophets of Baal, trying to manipulate their God. And then Elijah simply prays, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. You could pray that prayer in less than 30 seconds. And then the fire fell. What happens in response to God's prayer? The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, beloved, the Lord didn't answer that prayer because Elijah worked really hard at getting his attention. The Lord answered that prayer because Elijah was praying for his glory, the good of his people, according to his will, and because Elijah was one of the people of his pasture and one of the sheep of his hand. And so are You, you are the sheep of his pasture, right? You are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He loves you. In a striking advance of intimacy from the Old Testament, the very first thing Jesus will tell us to say in the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father. That is not the way Jews prayed in the Old Testament. But he's saying God loves you. You needed to learn, first and foremost, God is your king. He is holy. But the God who is perfectly holy loves you with a tender and everlasting love. And so he teaches us to pray, Our Father. And in these four verses that introduce the Lord's Prayer, in just four verses, three times, we are told by Jesus that the Lord is our Father. See, you do not need to do something impressive or eloquent to get the Lord's attention. You are not trying to gain the attention of a distracted or distant deity. The very God who spoke the universe into existence has become your Father in Jesus Christ, and he loves you with an everlasting love. Your Father in heaven is always looking upon you in love, so to go to him with the confidence and the simplicity of a young child and entrust everything that you are and everything that you have to your Father's care. If you think of the Lord as your great King, who can do all things, and as your eternal Father who loves you with an everlasting love, 
then you will be well on your way to praying with both greater frequency and greater faithfulness. For what we think about God determines whether and how we pray. Well, next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the framework which Jesus gives us for how we are to pray, what we call the Lord's Prayer. But next week is too long to wait to put what you heard this morning into practice. We need to apply it right now. And so let me offer you a simple and practical application of today's passage. I think most of you know I'm an introvert. Um, By nature, I would spend time with myself and, well, with books, but I am an introvert. And yet I really enjoy spending time with you, listening to you, talking with you. Why? Well, I'm an introvert. The reason isn't in me. The reason's in you. Two things about you. First of all, you guys are fascinating. You're kind. You're loving. It's a delight to spend time with you. But second, for most of you, I actually know you pretty well. See, no matter how amazing you are as a congregation, if I didn't know you, I'd still go off in my room by myself because that's my natural inclination as an introvert. Well, the application to God and to prayer isn't that complicated. As creative as you are, as interesting as you are, as kind as you are, God is infinitely more in all those areas. He's the most fascinating, interesting, creative, powerful person in the entire universe. And so if you want to increase your prayer life, and you want to be more faithful in your prayer life, you simply have to get to know him better. See, God is your king, and he is your father who sent his son to save you. If you meditate upon those truths about who God is and the wonder of what he is doing, if you you think more and more about his unfailing love for you in Jesus Christ and that he has made you a member of his family forever, then you will pray with greater vigor, with greater joy, and with greater consistency. The most important, the most fundamental thing that we need to do in order to pray with greater fervency and faithfulness is simply this. We need to keep reminding ourselves who it is to whom we direct our prayers. He is our king, and he is our father. Beloved, come to him as a trusting child, and he will hear your prayers with love. Amen.